This is a crowd podcast. Harry Truman. And that's it, Katie. At this point, there is no Doris Day that follows Harry Truman. There's no Red China. There's no Johnny Ray because this is the very first episode of We Didn't Start the Fire based on the hit Billy Joel song of the same name starring me, Katie Puckrick. And me, Tom Fordyce. But Katie, what on earth are we doing? Oh, my gosh. This is something I'm asking myself every second of the live long day. This is a modern history podcast tackling each and every of the nearly 120 subjects. How many? 120 subjects that Billy Joel tackles in We Didn't Start the Fire. And that amounts to over a two-year project because we are in this for the long haul. So strap yourself in. Katie, we've barely met and you're telling me we're going to be together for two and a half years? I hope your personal hygiene is up to the task. So, Katie, what are we going to talk about? What are the topics that Billy Joel covers in his magnum opus? Well, we are talking everything from Hollywood stars like Doris Day to places like Red China. Joseph Stalin is in there. Rock around the clock. So we're talking about music. We're talking about pop culture. We're talking about baseball. Oh, my gosh. There's so much baseball. Okay, Katie, this is the plan of attack as we have just sketched out on the back of a napkin in the restaurant (laughs) opposite the studios. Each week, Katie, we will work our way chronologically through Billy's song, so we will have a different lyric. You and me know almost nothing about these topics, probably much like our listeners, so we will bring in an expert to fill our heads with fresh knowledge. I love the idea of bringing in an expert. We have people who are authors, who are teachers, who are leaders in their profession, people who are rabid fans, people who can put us on the path to knowledge and entertain us while they're doing it. And you know what? Speaking about experts, I am hoping that we can leave just a few little breadcrumbs to entice the person who wrote this song (sighs) to come aboard. Yes, I'm talking about Billy Joel. Do you think that we can trick him into appearing on our podcast? Katie, if you build it, they will come. This is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Hello, Fire listeners. It's Tom here. I hope you're enjoying the series. I wanted to tell you about BetterHelp. We all carry around different stresses in life, big and small. A lot of the people we talk about in this series definitely did. And as we know, if we keep those stresses bottled up, it can impact us negatively. That's where therapy can be great. Therapy isn't just for people who've experienced major trauma. It can help you understand the way that your brain works and why you feel a particular way. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's all online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. All you need to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. With over 1,000 therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Fire listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com WDSTF, as in, we didn't start the fire. So, that is betterhelp.com WDSTF. 
So today we're talking about the 33rd president, Harry Truman, uh, greatest hits, Tom, off the top of your head. Well, Katie, he took over from FDR when FDR died. He was the Mm. man who was there in charge at the end of the Second World War. What else have you got? Oh, uh, Berlin Airlift. That was the one that my dad participated in as a pilot. And also, by the way, in P.S., Truman established NATO. Katie, I like it. I think Truman also established the Truman Doctrine. This may not be a surprise to you, given what it's called. (laughs) Uh, He was also known by uh, some sort of impertinent quipster as a 40-year-old failure from nowhere when he first took elected office. I am intrigued and I need to know more. And we have the perfect person to download the info that we are all thirsting for. She is a journalist, a political pundit, and an author with a long and respected career. She's a columnist with the Daily Beast. And before that, with Newsweek, she is Eleanor Clift. Welcome, Eleanor. Glad to be with you. (laughs) So glad to see you. Now, you are the perfect person to discuss Harry Truman with us, because as you were born in 1940, you were a little girl who was present hearing your parents discussing his potential election. What do you remember? You would have been, what, like four or five years old? Uh, Well, if we're talking about 1945, of course, that's when uh, the bomb was dropped over Hiroshima. I don't remember that, but I do remember I had an older brother who was 16 years older than me who had gone into the war at age 19 in 1945, and he was on a troop ship headed to Japan, which turned around after Truman issued the order to drop the bomb. So I was very aware of that, and I was very aware of the bomb, and I asked my mother, are we going we, we gonna to hit by the bomb? I mean, it was, it was an assumption that a child could easily make. We hit them. Are they going to hit us? And she said, oh, no, they'll never drop a bomb on New York. It's Washington thereafter. So when I moved to Washington as an adult, I kind of remember that. Uh, my, my consciousness of the world around me, though, comes a few years uh, later. And when Harry Truman is is running for election in 1948. Remember, he inherits the job. He'd only been vice president for 82 days when President Roosevelt, better known as FDR, a very sainted president in this country, uh, died. And uh, Eleanor Roosevelt called Truman to the White House and said, Harry, the president is dead. And Harry Truman had lived in an apartment on Connecticut Avenue, had very little contact with the administration. Being a vice president was not a big deal back in those days, and all of a sudden he was called into service. So he he serves out uh, the remainder of Roosevelt's term before he ran for election himself. One of the things, Eleanor, that strikes me about Harry Truman is that He's almost an accidental president, isn't he? Because he's from pretty humble stock. And he seems like he was massively helped by this figure called Tom Pendergast. Now, I've been doing a bit of reading about Pendergast. He was a political boss. He sort of ruled Kansas City and Jackson County in Missouri around this time. His little special source was he used his large network of Irish family and friends to sort of rocket launch the careers of politicians that he liked pretty controversial figure. He was addicted to gambling. There were accusations of voter fraud. He actually ended up in jail in the end. But he's this sort of dark glamour, isn't he, in this unglamorous, unassuming world of Harry Truman? Because you're never looking at Truman and thinking, that's a future president. 
uh, no college degree. Of course, not everybody went to college back then. I think the defining moment in his life was when he joined the National Guard before World War I and serves, and then after World War I breaks out, he re-enlists. And all of the um, uh, contacts that he made in the National Guard, he used them to great avail to build a political career after first trying to be a haberdasher. He and a, uh, a friend opened a, a store, which ultimately failed. And he gets involved with the Pendergast machine in Kansas, and they help him get elected to a judgeship. Uh, after that, they help him win a Senate seat. So he is made by political bosses. So this very humble man was able to somehow avoid the toxic spill from the Pendergast machine because he seemed so honest and trustworthy on his own. So now he's in the Senate, and uh, by the time he's running for re-election in the Senate, Pendergast has been exposed. I think he's dying in the hospital. But Truman comes to the attention of the Roosevelt administration, and so they replace the current vice president, Henry Wallace, with Harry Truman. So it's it's very interesting um, beginning of a political career. I, I don't know if you can find a comparison to today anywhere. And uh, his campaign song, I'm, I'm Just Wild About Harry and Harry's Wild About Me, was written by U.B. Blake, who was a well-known black uh, songwriter and singer of, of the time, which I find is a nice little... <laughs> little tidbits. Yeah, because it seems, Eleanor, that he's just kind of like on the down low, just uh, not drawing too much attention to himself. But I'm, I want to zero in and get a sense, a better sense of him as a man. Like, it's quite interesting that he was opening a haberdashery shop. So he potentially had uh, a little bit of a dandy-esque flair. He's interested in men's clothes, or maybe he's just interested in making money. Yeah. But also the fact that I understand he read Latin for pleasure. Uh, he brought music scores along to the symphony so he could follow along. So he, he was somebody who had some erudite interest, despite not going to college. And then the fact that uh, when he was an enlisted man, he would have been in the army alongside uh, people of color, alongside black Americans. And that would have perhaps been a formative influence for him for his early uh, civil rights enactments that happened later in his career. Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I don't know that he would be serving with black people because everything was segregated. Um, okay. He, as president, he signed an order desegregating the military. And unlike today, where something like that would have been subject to court challenges, the pundits would have been chewing it over for, for months, uh, he just did it quietly, it happened. And that is one of the success stories in this country in terms of, of integration of the military. Um, the other thing about him, I, I wouldn't call him a dandy. I mean, he, he, was, he was terrifically <laughs> practical. <laughs> but right. the music I can I can relate to. I mean, he played the piano. Uh, he and his wife, Bess, had one daughter, Margaret. And when he got to the White House, uh, she would perform concerts at the White House. And I think she was she was good enough. <laughs> but finally, a mus the music critic for the Washington Post wrote a very unkind 
review of her performance, uh, saying she's flat most of the time, or a lot of the time. She doesn't really stand out. She's a very pleasant performer, but she's not really that great a singer. And Truman responded with a letter that was truly scandalous at the time. And he he said if he ever met this music reviewer, and he sends him this letter, that the reviewer would need a new nose. He would need <laughs> lots of beefcake, beef steaks around his black eyes, and perhaps a, quote, supporter down below. So, Ooh. right, exactly. And so the Washington Post receives this letter, and Philip Graham was the, the publisher at the time, and uh, he didn't want to print it and didn't want to make it public. But the reviewer showed the letter around enough that it, it ended up being published in the rival uh, newspaper. And it really was a scandal at the time. And, because uh, he was speaking his mind. Was that considered just a little bit of a faux pas or Well, not or just out of speaking place? his mind. He's threatening a uh, a reviewer with bodily harm because the reviewer doesn't think his daughter is that star quality singer. I mean, that is, it really does cross the line. Harry Truman coming in after such a popular president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who served four terms. I mean, that must have been a, a tough act to follow. And also, am I right in knowing that it's the last time an American president ever served that many terms? Oh, after that, they uh, passed an, an amendment to the Constitution. You can't serve any more than two consecutive terms. And you're right, though, Roosevelt was incredibly popular and in that the stories often told that when the train bringing his body back from Warm Springs, Georgia, up to upstate New York for his burial, a reporter interviewed an adult man who was, you know, weeping profusely and asked him, did you know the president? And the answer was, I didn't know him, but he knew me. So that was, um, that's the legendary quote about um, about Roosevelt. You know, Truman did not ever have that kind of um, support in, in the country. And by the time he left the White House, he was one of the most unpopular. I think his approval was in the 30s. Uh, but time takes kind of takes care of that. And now, if you look at most ratings of presidents, he usually ends up somewhere in the top 10. And again, it's that humility, that everyday man quality that he is celebrated for, plus desegregating the military, plus basically creating the, the state of Israel. Okay, let's get into that, Eleanor. Now, some of my research for this has been on YouTube. I didn't expect to find Harry S. Truman there, mm -hmm. but you can find these really good old TV interviews. They're from the Screen Gems collection at the Harry S. Truman Library, and you can hear him talk about being the first world leader to recognise the state of Israel 11 minutes after its creation, which is pretty crazy. Six million Jews were killed outright, men, women and children, by the Nazis. And it was my hope that they would have a homeland where they His could decision operate. to use nuclear weapons against Japan in 1945 and so put an end to the war. Hiroshima and destroyed its usefulness to the enemy. That bomb has more power than 20,000 tons of TNT. America's role in the Korean War in the early 1950s. Our foreign policy is not a political issue. It is a matter of the future of mankind. By the way, Katie, there's one that you're really going to like. I'm going oh, to yeah? show this to you. So this is his cousin, Ethel. 
giving a bit of insight into Truman's character. I quite like this bit. And he was witty. He was funny himself. His conversation was, was full of fun and full of funny, witty remarks. So where should we start, Eleanor, with his greatest hits? I mean, I suppose it all comes back to the Truman Doctrine, doesn't it? Just talk us through what exactly is the Truman Doctrine? The Truman Doctrine was based on his uh, assumption that the biggest threats to uh, U.S. power and indeed the world was the encroaching power of China and the Soviet Union. And so his policies were designed to contain the expanse of those two countries and their ideology. And the Truman Doctrine is also known as containment. And you could also twin in the rebuilding of Europe after the Second World War, which was encouraging small-d democracy, is part of the Truman Doctrine. And does he deserve all the credit for it? Or had there been a different president, had FDR lived on, or a different vice president found their way into the Oval Office? Would it have come anyway from heads of department in the American government? Or was this absolutely Harry's rule? Oh, I, th- I don't think it came from Harry's own thinking. I think it was kind of the collective thinking. But if uh, a different president had been there, maybe someone else wouldn't have bought the notion that once you've crushed your, your enemies that you should help rebuild them seems a little bit of a contradictory notion. So you got to give Truman you know, credit for that um, sort of expansiveness of, of spirit uh, after the war. Okay, so we've got the Truman Doctrine, which is this policy of support for democracies against authoritarian threats. And it feels like this is maybe the most important thing because it pretty much tees up the rest of what is to come in Billy's song, especially when we think about H-bomb. We think about the atomic weapons dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Little Boy and Fat Man, they sound so innocent, don't they? But those were the first atomic weapons. And... If not the end point, then certainly part of the culmination of the Manhattan Project, which is the really top secret development of nuclear bombs that have been going on in the US for some time. Right. I agree. But I think we have to point out that the dropping of the bomb, which could have made him into a pariah because he issued that order, which is very controversial, uh, he's never really been assigned full blame or credit, depending where you are on the issue, because he was not involved. He did not know the Manhattan Project existed, which was the planning for the bomb, uh, even after FDR dies, and he's not really brought into the loop. He was brought in. He didn't know that this bomb was being constructed. Uh, he, he was not... Uh, brought in on all of the discussions with the military, and the alternatives were not very attractive. The alternative was to basically starve Japan with a blockade. So it set a terrible precedence, but the alternatives were were pretty awful too. And I just don't remember, uh, it's noted that he was president at the time, but it's not like 
This was this heavy decision presented to him. This was something that was in train that was, I think, he regarded as, as inevitable. And then, of course, soon after, you get the Korean War because the North Koreans invade South Korea and the United States jumps into that because, again, it's the encroaching Chinese influence. And uh, you have testing in the Nevada desert of a hydrogen bomb, which uh, then gets to be uh, underway. So the die, the die was cast. And you could actually look in the however many decades it's been since then, it's pretty amazing that there aren't more countries with this capability. Well, thank goodness. And yeah. it strikes me as interesting that he was so Teflon. Uh, he, it didn't really stick to him whether he was responsible or not. And in fact, it seems to me that um, maybe at the time there might have been a, a concern or a consideration that he was a war criminal. But did this ever come up? No. And you know, as you ask the question, I'm thinking to myself, we didn't have such a cult of personality around the presidency, certainly not for Truman. Maybe that came a little bit more with Eisenhower, but Eisenhower was so kind of quiet, and he was a he led the troops on Normandy. I mean, he he basically helped end the war, so he right. was a hero in a, in a, a different way. And then, of course, Kennedy comes and. And it's different, but... Yeah, he comes in, Kennedy comes in like a movie star, but it seems like right. maybe Truman didn't have enough of a personality That's to right. That's have right. a cult of personality. Exactly, exactly, yeah. If the worst scandal is that he, he wrote a uh, an obscenity-laden note to a music critic, it's, it's pretty tame stuff, yeah. There is one extraordinary entry from Harry Truman in his diary, Katie, that's, that's taken my eye. So this was... July the 25th, 1945, and it's when he is told by the Secretary of State for War, Henry Stimson, that the US has this bomb. And he writes, We have discovered the most terrible bomb in the history of the world. It may be the fire destruction prophesied in the Euphrates Valley era after Noah and his fabulous ark. So you can almost feel the weight of history on his shoulders there. Well, he, he certainly mm-hmm. understands that it's apocalyptic, it sounds like. And Eleanor, do you, uh, this is also pretty fancy words from somebody who wasn't college educated. Yeah, but I, I guess the notion of dropping a bomb that can eradicate hundreds of thousands of lives and create a fire scape that does draw uh, big words to try to come to grips with that. Hello, I'm Sam Walker. I've spent the last few months talking to this guy. If we have to pull a trigger on one person, they're all going to go. It's that simple. He's called KC. He's an American vigilante. And he kind of looked at me and I said, I swear to God, I said, if you do anything other than what I told you to do, I said, I'm going to kill you right here. Download the podcast, American Vigilante. Download American Vigilante. Out now. Now. When I look at pictures of Harry Truman, Katie, he looks like a pretty straight-laced guy, which maybe we should expect he is the president of the United States. Yeah. There's usually a suit, there's usually a tie. His hair is parted to the side and slicked down. Mm -hmm. He wears a pair of round spectacles He's pretty much unchanging in that he looks the same at 60 as he does 
when he's 13. <laughs> but this is someone who has to make some pretty monumental decisions. And one of those comes in 1948 with the Berlin Airlift. Well, I have to say, I have a, a certain amount of personal pride uh, when we talk about the Berlin Airlift because my father flew in it. And uh, he had just graduated from West Point and he was stationed in Germany. And he was part of that whole project. Uh, I mean, at the height of it, there were planes landing and taking off every 30 seconds. Wow. It was uh, an incredible feat. And uh, when I would talk to him about it when he was still living, he talked about it like it was a, a great adventure. And he talked about how uh, he and his co-pilot would have to keep their eye on the, the fuel because, of course, you could only carry the amount of fuel that would get you from base to Berlin and back again because the rest of your cargo was taken up with supplies. So if you went off course, it was curtains. And he talked about a few hairy moments when they got lost in the clouds and the navigator was desperately trying to figure out how to get back on course. And that was also a time that he talked about uh, traveling <laughs> with a litter of Irish setter puppies that that he was bringing back to some friends. I guess he'd brought them back from, from Berlin. I mean, crazy. Um, <laughs> and, and he also talked, uh, sadly, about the time that they landed and, and right before uh, his plane had landed, he'd landed the plane, there at the end of the runway, crashed into an apartment building in front of him was the plane right before him and everyone had died on that plane. So, I mean, it was a very, very dangerous mission and um, just really cool to hear hear his stories about it. Wow, that is quite the story, Katie. This is making me think, Ellen, because Truman has had such a huge impact in rebuilding the post-world world. We've already talked about the fact that he was one of the seminal figures in the creation of NATO in 1949, which is obviously the big sort of transatlantic defence slash peace agreement between the Western powers. We've heard about the Berlin Airlift. It's really hard to overstate how important Truman was to this whole period of history that we're talking about. Yeah, well, it was the Marshall Plan. And again, it was the United States was partner in destroying some of these wonderful cities. The bombing of Dresden is, you know, I think a blight on American military history. But it was a controversial decision by... Secretary of State George Marshall. He he basically said, you know, we, we we've got to share our resources. We've got to build these countries back up. And you know, today you have again our former President Donald Trump, who was furious that America looked after the security needs of Europe for so many decades later, and as Trump sees it, allowed Europe to rebuild in a way, knowing that they could count on America to support them. But that was that was a decision that was made, and I think a very wise decision. And that combined with, with NATO basically gave us, I don't know, 70 years of peace in, in a century which had seen some terribly bloody wars. For sure. Let's talk about his role in civil rights, because uh, we touched on this before, but in 1948, racial integration in the military began. Uh, what was the path to this, and what was his reasoning behind this? 
I believe he just signed an executive order. I mean, by then it was pretty clear that was the it was the right thing to do. Also, um, the organizations that were representing black people could say, look, our people serve, have served with honor uh, and they deserve to get the same uh, treatment as everybody else. The amazing thing is that it overall, it happened quite peacefully, probably with less friction than decades later when President Bill Clinton uh, confronted the question of gays in the military and came up with this tortured policy, don't ask, don't tell, which fortunately was finally overridden. So the military, because it is, it respects rules and rule following, uh, was able to implement this policy with amazing ease. And I think with Truman, the military had this ability to enforce an equality among very, very uh, different people. And when people saw that as as an asset, and it, it just seemed like the natural thing to do that you don't exclude, you know, the black population. And 1948, this is now a half dozen years or so before the uh, Supreme Court decision, Brown versus Board of Education. So, you know, in, in general, the civil rights movement had begun and people understood that segregation was evil and had, and had to be eradicated. And in, in that respect, Truman was definitely on the right side of history. There's a detail one that struck me when I was uh, boning up on this episode was that um, that he was hard up for cash when he first got out of the office mm-hmm. of the presidency. And that is not something that former presidents have to worry about today. So, so what was the situation there? Okay, well... The haberdashery store store had long since failed. I don't yes. think he did. Yeah, he didn't have any other income. And I mean, General Grant <laughs> had had written a memoir back in the Civil War days because he needed the money. But Truman wasn't about to write his memoirs. Uh, he wasn't in demand to make uh, you know speeches on leadership to corporate groups. So yes, I think he did have difficulty cobbling together a an income. You know, Jimmy Carter, when he left the White House after just four years, his peanut business was in disarray. And he was faced with... Because he had a peanut farm, didn't he? He had a peanut farm. That's exactly right. And um, he, he was a defeated Democrat. So he was not going to get invitations from, you know, Wall Street to come speak and pay him hundreds of thousands of dollars. So he took to writing books. And at, at this count... I think he's written like something like 17 books. So that's how he made his uh, living. I'd sort of assumed that once you had been president that you would be made for life because that's how we see it with presidents today. So I was quite surprised to find out that Truman himself was sort of quite hard up in his later years because there was no pension for the president at this point. So it wasn't actually until 1958 when Congress passes this former President's Act which pretty much does what it says on the tin, which then gives a yearly pension to each former president. And it sounds like it was Truman's own hard times that were a big factor in this coming to pass. Right. Well, his widow, Bess, also lived for quite a long time after he died. And so 
I mean, I think she was taking care of the Secret Service was protecting her for all that time. Mm. Do you know what, Katie? I, I find myself, the more that we hear about President Harry Truman, I find myself thinking that not only is he the perfect first person for Billy to mention in this song, because so many of the decisions he makes affects the next 40 years, but also he's almost mm. a, a form of cipher to so many other topics that we're going to come across in the next 120 odd episodes, because we've got other presidents, we've got Eisenhower, Later on, we've got Reagan, we've got JFK, of course. We've got some and of the... And Nixon, Nixon three times. Three lots of Nixon. <laughs> yes. Let's not forget some of the politicians elsewhere that he would have come up against, that he, he clashed with, like Stalin and Malenkov. We've got an episode on the H-bomb. We've got an episode on Berlin coming up. Charles so, de Gaulle, don't forget old Chuck. Of course. So all these yes. different places that we're going to go, Katie, in the next 120 episodes. Harry is taking our hand and leading us some of the way there. I know, and he's quite an unassuming character, Eleanor. Yeah, you can be singing, I'm just wild about Harry. (laughs) Harry's (laughs) wild about me. (laughs) Well, Harry doesn't even know the wildness that he's unleashing on the world. And if you were to say that he had a legacy, what would that legacy be, Eleanor? Um, The everydayness of the most important job in the world, if you consider the U.S. presidency the leader of the Western world, and he did it with uh, grace and, and humility. You can't say that about every one of his successors. <laughs> no, that, that, that's a, a very heavily underlined uh, with, with grit and a snarl statement, if ever I heard one, <laughs> Eleanor. Eleanor Cliff, thank you very much for sharing your, your firsthand experience of growing up under the Truman presidency (laughs) and then all the knowledge thereafter. Thank you, Elena. Thank you. (laughs) Eat stress-free this spring with Factors' delicious ready-to-eat meals. Always fresh and never frozen. Each meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. I eat flexitarian, so with a weekly menu of 35 options, there's plenty for me to choose from. So last night I had the Moroccan style almond crusted salmon and it was absolutely delicious. These are no fuss, no mess meals. Factor eliminates the hassle of prepping, cooking or cleaning up. Simply heat and savour the good stuff. With over 60 add-ons like breakfast, on-the-go lunch, snacks and smoothies, there's plenty of options to help you stay fueled and feel good all day long. Plus, you can customise your weekly meals and pause or reschedule deliveries to suit your lifestyle. Factor is your solution for fast premium meals without the need for cooking. What are you waiting for? Head to factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 and use the code WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code WDSTF50 at factormeals.com slash WDSTF50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Well, Katie, they say the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. The podcast of 120 episodes begins with a deep dive into Harry Truman. 
You know what I, I found myself thinking, Tom, as Eleanor was talking about Harry Truman? He was so um, dogged, nose to the grindstone, <laughs> uh, just following through on his different initiatives, whether it was the Marshall Plan, uh, starting NATO, desegregating the military, and he was getting results. But I think I... What I wanted from him was to to crow about his achievements a little bit more. Um, And he didn't really have that showman quality. He didn't have that kind of innate heroism that FDR had or maybe that movie star quality that we associate with JFK. And in fact, he didn't even have a catchy acronym. Nobody called him H.T. (laughs) He didn't have a catchy um, acronym, Katie, but I wonder if there's a little bit of nominative determinism going on here because he was incorruptible. He tried to get rid of government waste. He stayed true to himself. He still liked drinking bourbon and playing cards and playing the piano in quite average fashion. So I wonder if he was <laughs> if he was a true man in the end, he was a true man. Katie. <laughs> I, like, I was wondering where you're going with that because I thought, Tom, nominative determinism was uh, going to end up with him being very fluffy and hairy <laughs> uh, in in the nooks and crannies uh. of his physical person. Or maybe, you know, some nose hairs that needed to be trimmed. I think, Katie, of all the presidents that we're going to meet in the course of this series, I think Harry Truman probably was a very upright man. He's not the one that I would choose to spend a night out with. I think, although we will find out when we get to him, that might well be JFK. Okay, so we're saying president-wise... This is a little bit of a soft launch. (laughs) It's a soft launch. But Katie, we march (laughs) onwards, ever onwards, because next week we are meeting the charming, the always smiling Doris Day. Oh, Doris Day with a sunny smile and a sunny name, but a little bit of darkness underneath that beautiful, beautiful, glowing, gleeful grin. Katie, this is what I love about this podcast. We start with politics and we jump sideways into sort of musicals and film and sort of weird faded LA Hollywood glamour. I can't wait. My hindquarters are ablaze. I cannot wait. Until next week, Katie. Crowd Network. A place where you belong. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the allied powers go too far? in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.
Hello, my name is Peter Zablocki, and I'm a historian, author, and college professor. I'm thrilled to invite you to check out Evergreen Network's History Shorts podcast. Every Tuesday and Thursday, join me on a journey through time, exploring the little-known and hidden gems of history. In each bite-sized episode, I'll dive into my original research to bring you intriguing historical curiosities you've probably never heard of, uncovering the fascinating stories that have shaped our world, from forgotten figures to overlooked events. And the best part? I've condensed all this historical goodness into manageable chunks, perfect for your on-the-go lifestyle. Whether you're commuting to work or squeezing in a quick break, History Shorts fits into the little time you probably think you don't have. Subscribe now and never miss an episode of the History Shorts podcast, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts.